James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes and the dispersion greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. And God, we need guidance in our lives. We need instruction in our lives. First and foremost, we need to become aware of our situation. That because of our sin, we're actually in darkness. And because of our sin, we're actually cut off from true life, which is only found in relationship with you. The Lord, your word tells us that you didn't leave us in this situation, but because of your great love for us, you sent your own son to live a righteous life that we could not live to die the death that we deserve to die on the cross. And then, of course, three days later, to rise again and conquer our greatest enemy, the enemy of death. And now, for those of us who have turned to Christ in faith, we are your children, and you are our Father. And as our Father, you are guiding us into the light, into the truth, into life in its fullest. Lord, this is good news, and we receive it by faith today. As we now approach a brand new book, the book of James, God, we're asking that you would continue to guide us, that you would continue to teach us and instruct us and transform us so that we can live lives that are blessed, but also so that we can be a blessing to others and so that this church family might flourish, that we might genuinely love each other and serve each other and honor each other and value each other. 
and care for one another's needs. So Lord, we invite You now by Your Spirit to use this passage that we've read this morning for our instruction and our transformation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I know I'm a preacher, so I'm a little biased, but I get real excited every time we start a brand new book of the Bible. I hope you share in my enthusiasm this morning, but uh, the book of James is awesome. It's such an exciting book, and it's five chapters long, and uh, all of you have your scripture journals, which is awesome. These are great tools, and um, I've been using my scripture journal now to prepare for this sermon series, and it's wonderful for your own personal devotional life. And we're hoping that you guys are going to use these scripture journals for your own personal devotional life. They're also really, really good tools for sermon note-taking. And so our hope for the church is that over the next 13 weeks or so, as we're studying together in the book of James, that you would be spending time in the book of James, uh, at least some time in the book of James, in your own devotional life, and that you'd be writing down notes in this scripture journal. And then also that you would bring it week after week here on Sunday morning and use it to take your notes from the sermons on Sundays. And what you'll find is that after we're done with the book of James, you're going to kind of have your very own little Bible commentary on the book of James with all of your own notes and some of the notes from what's been being taught on Sundays. So that's sort of the vision for those scripture journals. They're a great, great resource. So the book of James... You've got these great notebooks. Let me give you something to write down. You can start here. James is a book about wisdom. James is a book about wisdom. So if your goal in life is to be foolish, this is going to not be interesting to you. This book's not going to profit you. If you're like, I would love to be a total fool my whole life, this isn't going to help you. But if you, like most people, have a desire to live a life of wisdom and make wise decisions, this book is going to be very helpful. Sometimes the book of James is called the wisdom literature of the New Testament. Now in the Old Testament, there's a genre of books called the wisdom literature. This would be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Those five books are called the wisdom literature. And In the New Testament, again, James is sometimes called the wisdom literature of the New Testament because in it, God is providing practical guidance for living life consistently with his truth. Again, in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and also in James, God provides his people practical guidance for living life consistently with God's truth. So check this out. James is going to help us develop greater and greater consistency between what we believe and how we live. Okay, because there's always going to be some discrepancy there, right? Because we are flawed, fallen, sinful creatures. So we have what we believe, what we think is true, what we think is right, what we think is best. Then we have the reality of where we're actually living. Well, what James is going to do as a wisdom book is he's going to help us to develop greater and greater consistency, or to put it another way, to help us bridge that gap between what we believe and how we actually live on a day-to-day basis. This is going to be very, very helpful. James is not okay with shallow Christianity. 
James is not okay with hypocritical Christianity where we say one thing, oh yeah, yeah, I believe these things, and then we go live a different way. James is not interested in how many people we can get to identify as Christians. Doesn't care about that. What James cares about is helping us to understand that true faith, true biblical faith always, let me say it again, always works itself out in good fruit in the life of a believer. Doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. Doesn't mean at times Christians can't do bad things. But overall, if you have true faith in Jesus, it's going to work itself out in your life in tangible, observable, good fruit. And check this out. Wisdom is the ability to do that with consistency. To bear good fruit in your life with consistency. So who is the author of the book of James? James, done. Easy question. Who's the author of the book of James? Well, it is James. He identifies himself that way in verse 1. What he tells us about himself in this introduction is very short. He says in verse 1 that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great reminder that to be a servant of one is to be a servant of the other. If you are a servant of God, you are serving Jesus Christ. And if you are serving Jesus Christ, you are a servant of God. And he is reminding us that he is God's servant, and therefore he's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The traditional view on who this James might be, because there's a number of James in the New Testament, is that James here is the brother of Jesus. We know from the Gospels that Jesus had a brother named James. And it's not surprising that there's so much of Jesus' teaching found here in the book of James. Some scholars say that there's some 57 references to Jesus' teaching just in these five short chapters. And if, in fact, James is Jesus' brother, that would make a lot of sense. He probably got to hear a lot of what Jesus believed and said and taught throughout Jesus' life, both before his public ministry and certainly during it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, the Apostle Paul's talking about the resurrection of Christ. And he says there that Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, made appearances to all kinds of people. But in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15, he specifically notes that the resurrected Christ appeared to James, his own brother. And so most people believe that that was the moment that James went from being skeptical about who his brother was to being convinced. That's pretty convincing, right? Your brother who you saw die on a cross is now standing in front of you again. I would believe. And James certainly does. And he puts his faith in Jesus as the Messiah of God. This traditional view, and to me it seems like the right one, again, is that Jesus, his brother James, is the author here. We know from the Bible and from church history that James was one of the most prominent leaders in the early church. Really, the top three were Peter, Paul, and James. And James is the leader at the church in Jerusalem. So that's a bit about who 
authored this book, what do we know about who he's writing to? Who's the audience of the book? Well, look again at verse 1. James wrote to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In the dispersion. The Greek word is the diaspora, which was a word that was common at the time of Christ as a way of referring to the Jews who in their exiles were spread out or scattered among the nations. They were gone from the Holy Land. They were gone from Jerusalem. And so the way that they were referred to is they were referred to as the diaspora, the scattered or dispersed ones who are no longer there in the Holy Land. And so James here is likely using this to refer now to Jewish Christians who had been spread out from Jerusalem and are now in congregations in various areas in the Mediterranean world. So these are Jewish congregations that are living beyond Jerusalem. Now, in many ways, James was their pastor. James is the leader of the Jerusalem church. And you need to know that at this point in church history, all of the churches that were being planted through the missionary activity of the church still looked to the church in Jerusalem as the mothership. The church in Jerusalem was sort of the, the highest authority at this point when they had questions or concerns. We see this in Acts chapter 15. You'll remember in Acts chapter 15, we have the famous Jerusalem council. And what had happened there in the early church is that Paul and Barnabas are out being missionaries. They're preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. And a lot of the people that are getting saved are not Jewish. They're Gentiles. And so this started creating a conflict in the churches because there were Jewish Christians and now there are these non-Jewish or Gentile Christians that are gathering together in public settings like this to worship. And the Jewish Christians are starting to say, hey, following Jesus means that you need to start adopting some of the Jewish law because Jesus was Jewish and Christianity is really just the continuation of Judaism. You need to become Jewish. So they're looking at Gentile men, for example, and saying, so you need to go get circumcised. Not something most grown men are interested in going and doing. So this creates conflict. So what does the church do? All of the leaders of these various churches assemble together in Jerusalem. They have a conference or a council. And it's significant that James, the author of this book, his counsel that he gave in that meeting carried the day as far as how the churches were going to move forward. So the churches commonly looked to Jerusalem and James as the chief pastor in Jerusalem for wisdom and guidance. And so now, James, this sort of pastor among pastors, is writing to these churches that are spread abroad about the issues that they are facing. What are these issues? Well, the first and most pressing issue is told to us right here in verse 2. These believers, these Jewish Christians in various churches outside of Jerusalem are facing trials. These Christians are suffering. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so this is the first issue that James is going to deal with. The issue of trials, the issue of suffering, because that's the reality that these believers are facing. I want to show you kind of our big picture overview of the book of James. We're going to put it on the screen here to give you an idea of 
how we're breaking down the book of James to be, or for our teaching here. Uh, the first section is the testing of faith. And this is chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. This is where we're at today. Then we're going to move into hearing and doing the word. As I said, James is not content with all of us just saying we're Christians, but not actually living this thing out. Number three, he's going to address trouble in the community starting in chapter three and going into chapter four. And then finally, we're going to talk about a faith-shaped worldview. If you really are a Christian, how does that impact the way that we see the world? And that's going to take us through the end of the book. But part one, as you see, is the testing of faith. Ryan read this passage for us together, verses 1 through 18. But today we're only going to cover verses 1 through 4. Everybody say, only 1 through 4. And we're already done with verse 1. We're going to cover 2 through 4 with the rest of our time today. These 18 verses we're going to spend three weeks on. Today, just verses 1 through 4. So he's talking about the testing of our faith specifically through trials. I want you to draw your attention to verse 2 and the way he describes the type of trials that he has in mind. He says here, trials of various kinds. The expression there is general enough or broad enough to include any and every type of trial a believer might face. He does, during the rest of the letter, get into specific trials that he has in mind. But he wants us to know that what he is writing here applies not just to those specific trials, but to any type of trial that a believer might face. Let me give you a sampling, though, of the specific trials that he will address later in the letter. We'll put the screen up as well. Number one is the trial of poverty and oppression. This is going to be dealt with in verses 9 and 10 here in chapter 1. Then also in verse 27 of chapter 1, and then again in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and then verses 14 and 16 of chapter 2. Another trial he's going to deal with is temptation. We're going to talk about this in two more weeks. Temptation, chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. He's going to deal with sin and infighting. Did you know that inside the church, people sin against each other? If you didn't know that, welcome to your first Sunday in church. You're going to find out real fast. He's going to deal with persecution. Believers actually being drugged into court because of their faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to deal with sickness or illness in chapter 5. And then again, he'll just reference suffering in general in chapter 5, verse 13. Because again, he knows that people are suffering in myriad ways out there. But he has something from God's word to say to them in the midst of their suffering. Now, some of us this morning have come into church and you're in a rough patch in your life. You've come this morning and you are facing trials of various kinds. Maybe for you, you are facing trials in your life that are very similar to the trials of these early Christians. Maybe you're dealing with sickness like they were. Or maybe you're in a season of life or maybe you've always been in this season of life of poverty and financial distress. Maybe you've been battling with temptation in your life. Maybe extreme temptation of recent. Others this morning are facing trials, but they're not like that. They're facing different types of trials. Maybe for you this morning, you've come to church and your marriage is in crisis. You two can't seem to figure it out. 
You're constantly having friction and butting heads and you're wondering, is this ever going to get better? Maybe it's difficulty with your kids. Maybe you've been falsely accused of something. Maybe you're dealing with loneliness this morning. Maybe you're battling severe anxiety or depression. Maybe you've been overworked for a long time and there's no end of overtime relenting. This is going to be really helpful for you because those are trials of various kinds. Now, on the off chance that anybody showed up this morning and life is just awesome, it's all sunshine and skittles coming out of rainbows, guess what? This is still going to be really important for you. I want you to look at verse 2 with me and notice that he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when, do you see that? When you meet trials of various kinds. He doesn't say if, like this is maybe not going to happen for some of us. Like some of us get to go through our whole lives and we get a pass on suffering. That's not the case. So if you're not, you're not in a trial right now, well, rejoice in the fact that you're not in a trial. But learn this morning how you can even rejoice when in the future you're faced with trials. The best time to prepare for a trial is actually before it even hits you. So I think all of us can lean in this morning as we talk together about trials. So with what wise words does this pastor among pastors encourage these suffering congregations of Christians? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Hold up. Play that back again. Did he say what we thought he just said? Yes, he did. Hey, I know you guys are going through hardship. And he writes, count it all joy or rejoice. That's like a little bit shocking and doesn't sound to me anyway to be all that pastoral. As a pastor, I can't imagine your reaction if you said to me after church today, hey, pastor, can I schedule a meeting with you this week? Sure, let's get together on Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday evening and you come into my office and you sit down and you start crying and you say, I am going through such a hard time. I can't imagine your reaction if you said that to me and I looked at you and said, praise God. Or rejoice. You would probably get up out of my office and walk out and say, that guy is crazy and he's a terrible pastor. He missed his calling. He should be doing something else. Well, I can guarantee you to put you at ease that if James was speaking to somebody one-on-one, -on -one, he would be a lot more sympathetic. And he would have dealt with this a lot more sympathetically. But you need to know that the book of James is what's called an encyclical letter, meaning that it was not a personal note going to one person. It wasn't even like Paul's letters to specific churches, like Romans or Corinthians, which was going to one congregation. This was meant to go to numerous congregations, and so in this letter, instead of him talking to a single person, he's broadly giving theological instruction to shore up Christians who are facing various trials in different churches. And because of that, he's just going to dive right in. He's just going to cut to the chase, and he's going to explain to us as Christians how we can endure trials joyfully, which is a radical idea. Now, some of us have read this so many times or you've heard this so many times because maybe you were raised in the church that we read, count it all joy, and it kind of loses its shock value. But again, just kind of put it into a specific situation. 
What kinds of situations? I don't know. Imagine it's like you come in and it's, you're being oppressed. Count it all joy. You're severely ill right now and you don't know if you're going to get better. Count it all joy. You're being persecuted, potentially going to prison. Count it all joy. You're a widow or an orphan who's in need right now. Count it all joy. You're desperately poor. Rejoice. Your loved one died. Count it all joy. I mean, it's shocking when you put it into a specific situation or trial that somebody could be facing. And church, we know God's not calloused, right? We know God's not calloused. We know that God does not make light of our suffering or that God is not indifferent to the pain that we're going through. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, why or how could he say this to us? If if he's not calloused and he's not indifferent, how could he say to us, count it all joy when we're suffering? Here's the answer. Ooh, I saw people move with their notes. Like, hold on, this this is important. This is important. Here's the answer. Our joy is not the trial itself, but in the result and the reward of our trial. Our joy is not the trial itself. Because a lot of times, trials are really bad. They're painful. In the case of many of the trials these believers are facing, these trials are the result of other people's sin. We're not saying, hey, we're so happy about the sin or the trial, but our joy is actually found in the result and the reward of the trial. That's what James is going to point us to this morning. And those are going to serve as our two points in this morning's sermon. Number one, the first reason why the Christian response to trials is joy, and we've got to get this in our hearts, is the result of our trials. What is the result of a Christian's trials? Short answer is this, spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Look at verse four. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. Sounds sweet, huh? Isn't that where you want to be as a Christian? Wouldn't you love to be in a place in your life where you could say, or it could be said of you, that they are, they're perfect or they're whole and they're complete and they are lacking in nothing. They're impervious to the circumstances of their life. Trials come, temptations come, issues spring up, perplexing counsel is sought of them and they are impervious to these things. I think we would all want to be there, complete, lacking in nothing spiritually. Newsflash, that cannot happen in your life without your faith being tested, without going through trials. That is the way that that is going to happen. And if that's true, then listen, trials are not mean. Trials are a means. Sometimes hardship hits and people can stop and go, well, maybe God's being mean to me. Maybe God is angry with me. Maybe God is actually a bad God and he's trying to hurt me. That is not the Christian understanding of trials. Trials are not mean and it's not evidence of a mean God. Trials are a means to an end. And what is that end? Spiritual maturity. 
God is using the challenges, the sufferings, the hardships, the trials, the injustices of life to do something in you, to form you and mature you and grow you and listen, strengthen you as his child. Now listen, that does not mean that every trial that you face is authored by God. Again, as I pointed out, the oppression that they're going to face and many of the other trials that these people are going to face are the result of other people's sin. And many trials that you face in your life are the result of people's sin. God is not the author of those trials. But here's the good news for us as Christians. Whether the trial that you face comes from the hand of God or the hand of your enemy, it's always going to pass through the hands of God so that by the time it gets to you, God's going to use it in your life for good. This will totally reorient the way that we face our trials. God is using them. They're a means in His hand. They're an instrument in His hand. A tool that He can use to chisel us and to mold us and to shape us. Well, how does it work, Daniel? Here's how it works. We read it right here in the text. If you go back to verse 3, so he says, look, trials are going to hit you. And then in verse 3, he says, for you know that the testing of your faith, that's what a trial is, it's a testing of your faith, He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Another way to translate that is endurance. So trial comes. Here's the cycle. Here's how it works. Trial comes. What is that trial that hits you? It comes into your life. When you respond by faith, it produces endurance. Another trial comes. You respond by faith. It produces endurance. Another trial comes in your life. You respond by faith. It produces endurance. And the end result of all of that, the end result of a lifetime of that, is spiritual maturity. That you might be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So that's how this is working. It's actually, if you think about it, very, very similar to the way that physical endurance is built up. Right? How, how does somebody build up physical endurance? We could substitute the word trial for training. Okay, what do you do? You train and it creates endurance. Not just once, although we like to think that's how working out goes sometimes, right? Or eating healthy. It's like, you know what? I'm going to get myself in shape. Okay, honey, here's the plan. I'm going to start eating healthy. You go out to lunch and you order a salad. And you feel so light and so free and so healthy. And you're so proud of yourself that you celebrate that night with chili cheese fries. Right? That's the way that we are. That, that is never, ever going to get you to a place of, of uh, physical fitness or physical wholeness. What does it take physically? It takes training is building endurance. More training, more endurance. More training, more endurance. More training, more endurance. And when you do that consistently over the long haul, it produces physical fitness. And then, guys, you can walk up to your wife with no shirt on and say, look at me, I'm a specimen. Okay, and you can kind of show off a little bit. Don't we want to do that, guys? Am I the only one that wants my wife to be proud of me? Instead of her looking at me and going, put your shirt back on, you're scaring the kids. (laughs) Now, more of the men in the room identified with that statement than the first half of that. So we need to hit the gym, guys. We're not going to go to IHOP next Saturday. We're going to do a hike next Saturday together, okay, and eat granola and kale. 
But, but that's how it works, right? It's not an overnight thing for you. It's the same way spiritually, the way that God is growing us up. The way that God is strengthening us is going to be through a trial, and we endure it with faith, meaning trust. We're going to just trust God in that trial. And as we're doing that, it's producing endurance. And after time and time and time of this happening in our lives, and by God's Spirit, we're reacting rightly to these trials What we develop is a spiritual strength, a spiritual fitness, or if you like, a spiritual maturity. This is why Paul could write in Romans 5, 3 through 5, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Seems like him and James are on the same page here. Suffering produces endurance. And then look at what he says, an endurance produces produces character. It's building that Christ-likeness, that spiritual maturity. And he won't stop there. Paul keeps going on. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And church, listen, when you stop and think about it, it's really hard to imagine any other way that we could develop spiritual strength that we could develop a strong faith. I mean, how else would that actually happen in our lives if it wasn't through trials? If everything in your life was going perfect for your entire life, where would there need to be faith? At what point would it actually require you trusting in God? Everything would be awesome, and you know what would end up happening? You would have a weak faith or a misguided faith because you'd actually find that throughout your amazingly perfect and blessed life, you'd find that what you're really in love with is the gifts and not the giver. The only way for God to get us beyond that is to withhold some of the gifts, to allow trial and tribulation and hardship to come into our experience so that we can go, you know what, is it really about the money? Is it really about the job? Is it really about the praise of other people? Is it really about the promotion? Or is it really about God? Is that who I really want? Do you guys remember Job chapter 1? Some wisdom literature here. Do you guys remember Job chapter 1? In Job 1, the story's like, hey, there was once this guy named Job, and his life was awesome. He had everything going for him. And we've got this little depiction of this interaction in heaven between God and Lucifer, God and Satan. And God's saying to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's, he's just exactly what we read about in verse 4. This guy is upright. He's just got it all together. He's a righteous man. You know, what, you know what Satan says? Satan says, well, of course he's like that because his life is awesome. Here, I'll read it to you. Job 1, 7 through 11, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on earth. He's blameless and upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear you for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And God's like, really? Game on. Let's see if that's exactly what happens here. That's really the only way for us to be strengthened in our faith. 
is hardship has to come. Otherwise, of course we would follow the Lord. So the first thing we learned this morning is that we can count it all joy when we face trials because the result of our trials is our spiritual maturity. It's becoming more like Jesus. It's a deeper knowledge of and love for our God. That's what He's going to produce in you in the midst of trials. And many Christians have remarked, perhaps some of you have thought this way. They've said, you know what? I would have never asked for X, Y, or Z to come into my life. I would have never asked for this. But you know what? Now that I've gone through it, I can actually say that in some strange, mysterious way, I'm really thankful for it. And what Christians always mean when they say that is that they've, they've found God to be stronger and more faithful than they ever thought he was or ever would have known that he was had they not walked through that terrible trial. It's just the way that these things work. Okay, second reason that James give a, gives us that the Christian response to trials ought to be joy is this. So we talked about the result of our trials. Let's talk together about the reward of our trials. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We can have joy in the midst of our trials, not only because they are producing something, something wonderful within us, but because they will lead to something wonderful for us. There's two reasons here. It's not just because God's doing a great thing in the here and now. That's wonderful. But as if that's not good enough, it's also because God is preparing something ahead of us. He calls it the crown of life. Eternal life. This is great news. For those of us who endure, for those of us who bear up by faith in the midst of our trials, the end result is going to be spiritual maturity and the eternal reward is going to be the crown of life. As I mentioned, trials hit all people. Nobody gets an exemption from this. It's coming. We're all going to have to face trials. It's not an if, it's a when and a what. But look at this this morning, church. For those of us who by God's grace can see through our trials with eyes of faith, there is life. There is eternal life waiting as the reward that God gives to us as we share in the sufferings of Christ. And so this was encouraging for me this week. This reminds us that trials are temporary. That suffering has a shelf life. That there will come a day, no matter how dark it feels right now, there will come a day when that trial in your life has to, must, absolutely will loosen its grip. Your trials, your suffering are temporary. Because this life that we're living is not all that there is. There is an eternity beyond the grave. And for those of us who endure by faith and say, Lord, I don't get it right now. Lord, this is difficult. We're going to talk about that next week where we're asking God for wisdom because it's not making sense. For those of us who are doing that and we're saying, God, we don't get it, but we trust. God, we're going to continue to hold on. We're going to cling to you. Guess what? One day that trial is going to end. And at that point, 
we're going to be blessed. Oh, blessed is the person who endures these trials. We're going to receive the crown of life. How would a person know if they're responding to their trials by faith? What does that look like? How would we know? Answer, they still love him. They still love him. Look again at verse 12. We read there in verse 12 that the crown of life is promised to a select group of people. Those that love him. And I love that. It's not those who obey me, those who get in line, those who get it right in their life. No, it's those who love him. It's always been about that. It'll always be about that. And God's got a crown of life awaiting those who love him. And he promised it. And why can God promise the crown of life? Why can God give you his guarantee that if you are the type of person who endures by faith the trials of your life, continuing to trust in him as a good God and Savior, why can God promise it? Because God secured it. Through the life, death, and resurrection of God himself, Jesus the Christ, God secured salvation for his people. And so on the cross, Jesus paid for our sins. And he's taken our sins that were once red like scarlet and he's made them white as snow and he's cast them as far as the east is from the west, never to haunt you again. And if, you're in, if you've put your faith in Christ, you need to know that you're forgiven. There's going to be no judgment. And if you've put your faith in Christ, God is promising that as you continue to endure the trials of life, trusting him, that he will reward you with the crown of life. It's promised to those who love him. Trials are a great litmus test. They can turn a person away from God or toward God. God uses trials and suffering to separate the wheat from the chaff and the sheep from the goats. We read about this in the parable of the soils, Matthew 13. And so if you're not really a Christian, trials are going to confirm that in your life. Trials are going to hit and your response is going to be to shake your fist at heaven and say, if that's who you are, if that's the type of God you are, I want nothing to do with you. And many people respond that way. But church, listen, if you're truly a Christian, no matter how difficult it is, by God's Spirit, He's going to empower you to continue holding on. So all of us that are in church this morning should check ourselves. The Scriptures commend us to do that. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of pretenders in churches. We need to ask ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. Will I still love him if the bottom falls out? Will I still love God if my dreams come crashing down? James is going to point us to the example of Job in chapter 5, and I'm going to close with this. After that conversation in heaven, Job lost everything. Everything that mattered to him. His wealth, his ten children, his own good health. And his friend said, curse God and die. Or his wife, I should say, his best friend, supposedly. <laughs> said, curse God and die. Many people wouldn't have blamed Job if he did. But Job, with eyes of faith, said this in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. 
Family, listen, it's only through eyes of faith that somebody can speak that way. Because through eyes of faith and with that lens over our eyes, you and I are able to look to the cross where the greatest trial and the greatest suffering in the history of the world occurred. And we're able to see that through the greatest suffering imaginable, the greatest good ever accomplished occurred. And so it gives us the faith to say that even in my trial, even in my suffering, God is going to work for good. And God is going to deliver me. And so James could say, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Some of you here this morning, again, are facing trials. I know that because you've shared it with me. We've prayed together. We've talked from God's word together. And we've prayed some more. God is not calling you this morning to be joyful about that thing that's happening in your life. He's inviting you to experience his joy in the midst of your trial. And the way we're going to do that is by looking beyond our suffering to our Savior. Recognizing that because of our faith, we belong to him. And if we belong to him, then church, all of our trials are leading to our salvation. Father, I'm so thankful for this important passage of Scripture, this important teaching for us as believers this morning. Because if we can't understand these things, we're never going to learn to respond rightly to trials. But because of what we're studying together this morning in James chapter 1, Lord, we're able to get the right perspective. We're able to get a heavenly perspective and recognize that trials are not mean. This is not evidence of a God who doesn't care or a God who is out to get us. Now, trials are the result of living in a really fallen, broken world. And one day you're going to make everything that's wrong in this world right. But in the meantime, Jesus, you told us that we would have tribulation. But God, we're so thankful that, Jesus, you said that we could take heart because you had overcome the world. And so this morning, we're thankful for these reminders. And God, we would invite you by your spirit to continue to give us eyes of faith no matter what we face. For those who are currently going through great trials, God, would you strengthen their faith? Would you help them to hold on? And would you cause us as brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside them and pray and encourage and support them? And Lord, for those of us who aren't going through trials right now, would you store these truths in our hearts so that we might respond properly no matter what we face in this life? God, we love you. We really do. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to grow in our love for you as we see the good things that you're doing in the midst of a pretty bad world. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen.